I'd like for you to open to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're again looking at the subject of the believer's security. Now, you need to ground yourself in this message, the security that a true believer has, not church members, but believers. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, believes in what Lord, Lord means. Didn't Jesus say something like that? Didn't he say that not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom? But he said that he that doeth the will of his Father. We want to make sure that all of us in this life, as we're traversing through it, as we're busy about its ways and things and duties and responsibilities, we must come to the place where we recognize and realize that the most important thing in our life is the Lord Jesus and that we focus on him and realize that he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light and he had a purpose in doing that and what he started he's going to finish now the very idea that he said that means that he's going to make sure that what he chose he's going to do the work in he's going to finish with them that security is there. But this verse is a real good verse. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. Your name is already on it. Wherein, he said, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if necessary, though now for a season, if necessary, you're going through this and you're going through that, sometimes it makes you wonder if you really are chosen. Sometimes you just don't think you're doing very good. You dropped the ball. You messed up. You fell apart during a trial. And you wonder, am I really chosen or am I going through the motions acting like I'm one but not really sure that I am God's? But read verse 5 again. It says, who are kept. Who are kept. It means preserved and guarded. Who are kept by the power of God in this way. And we'll finish this series with this verse again. Through faith, God has ordained not only that he's chosen you and left you in this world, but he says that through faith, by the power of God, through faith unto salvation. Now, he's going to keep me. I'm going to make it. Now, I can't just assume that that's true because I'm in a church setting and I read that. You have to believe that. Your life has to be an example of your faith in that. I believe I belong to God. I believe that because I belong to God, I should live a certain way that is right with God. We call it righteousness. And I believe that I should live with a desire to make good choices and right choices in this life because that's what he wants. And while I've never seen the Lamb's book of life, I've never seen my name in it or the place that is reserved for me, I've never seen it, but I believe it. 
God has given that to me. That's in my heart. And it'll be seen by the way we live. If you're really his, we'll all know it. But this is what it means to be kept. It means that God who chose you out of darkness, plucked you out of the miry clay, did it with purpose. He has something he has designed for you to do. And he that called you and put you to work in his world is he that will keep you. And he that started a good work will finish this good work. One of our favorite Psalms, or at least one of my favorite Psalms, Psalms 91 verse 11 says, and he will keep us in all our ways. God cares about how we live. He's concerned about our ways. He said that he'll send the Holy Spirit, which we maybe get to today, and he'll guide us into all of his truth. He's able to do that. And in that way, we'll please God, and it'll be more evidence to the world and to you and everybody else that God has his hand upon you. Now, our three ingredients by divine choice, the way that God has ordained this to be, Everybody who comes to Christ, there will be three things in your life that all connect. They're all controversial. They've all split churches. They've all caused people to fight and all of that and fume and break fellowship. But there are three specific things that are necessary and vital in your security. You can't do without any of them. You can't disregard any of these three things. And so the devil, knowing that they're necessary, has done his very best to make us in disagreement over what they're all about. And the first one is the Word of God. The second one is the Holy Spirit. And the third one is faith. And if you've been around long enough, as some of us have, you know that we've fought over all of this. Take, for example, what we said last week, the Word of God. That's all we've got. God gave us his word alone exclusively. No other book, no other document, no other recording to tell us specifically how to live, what he wants from us, even by the insight that God gives, showing us in the pages of scripture who God is, how he is, what he does and why he does enabling us to draw near to him, forsake the world and seek the kingdom. And as we begin to pursue the Lord and begin to study his word, things begin to come into focus. It is the way, this is the way, walk ye in it. And yet, sitting here this morning, reflecting back on a couple of thousand years of the church on this earth, it is divided it is cut in pieces. Most every town of any size at all has many different kinds of Christian churches. The various Baptists and the various Pentecostals and the, you got the Methodists and the Presbyterian, you got Lutherans. We got the Catholic churches and we got the Episcopal churches and we got all different kinds that have been formatted through the ages to suit certain kinds of people. This is going to sound harsh because I remember last week in battling this thing after it's over. You know, this sounds harsh to say that all these people have departed somewhere from the word. All of them have. 
And there's no way that you're going to go in any kind of these traditional churches and preach to them, preach to that system and change it. It'll never happen. It is based on a man-made revelation that was suitable to people. It replaced the word of God. Turn to Mark chapter 7. It replaced the word of God and it became the way that people live. We're even told in the Bible when God begins to show you his word and reveal truth to you, we're even told that you're going to encounter people in life in religious settings that don't agree with you and don't agree with what the Bible said. Even in one place in 2 Timothy 3, it says they will have a form of godliness. That's the structure of it all. That's the way we function as a group. Our traditions or our routines, our format, how we come together and we sing and we worship. Surely that's not wrong. The preacher stands, reads the Bible. Surely that's not wrong. People put money in some container. Surely that's not wrong. I mean, they do so many things that we all do in all these churches, but we're so different. And surely that can't be wrong. But remember, there is a way that seems right. That's not right. Isn't that true? Twice in the book of Proverbs it says this, there is a way that seemeth right unto man. But the end of that way is death. And how hard that would be to swallow if you were in that way. Because look at all the things you're doing. You're doing things right. You're a different person than you used to be. You don't hang out to bars. You're hanging out at church now and stuff like that. So surely it's not wrong. And it's a certain kind of an offense. And somebody begins to tell you that, you know, that's not right. God didn't tell us to do it that way. You've got that wrong. Then the war starts, and it's all about the word. But he said, if they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of it, what are we supposed to do? Turn away. How harsh is that? How unloving does that seem to be? Turn away. But look in Mark chapter 7. In verse 7, Jesus here is rebuking these people. And he said, how well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. That's true right now as I'm talking. I remember one time a preacher said, and I've met more than all of y'all put together probably in the years, 40 years of traveling and going around the world and here and there. So I don't care what it says, we're not going to do that. I don't care what you say, we're not going to do that. I don't care how you read the Bible, we're not going to allow that here. The reason most all of us are here today is because we had to leave something in order to go on. Isn't that true? Amen. Well, he said full well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. Moses said this and Moses said that. In verse 13, he said, making the word of God of none effect through your traditions which you have delivered and many such things that you do. Is it possible that we can make the word of God, this book we're all holding, that we can make it ineffective by traditions? which would mean that our traditions replace what the Bible says. 
We may quote the Bible in our traditions, but we're not going to do it that way. What would happen in a lot of church if you clapped your hand during worship? There would be people who say, I don't think that's necessary. Or there'd be people with all this emotional outbursts. This? You must have gone to a ball game last night. But no. What if you raise your hands? Such an emotional outburst. Well, that's in the Bible. What about dancing? King David danced before the Lord. He danced with all his might. I was in a church one time. They got so excited during the praise, they ran outside and ran around the parking lot. And they came back in, sat down, just as happy as they could be. Such an emotional outburst. You would never see none of the old traditions do that. They won't have it. I don't care what the Bible says, we're not going to do any such thing. We think everything should be done decently and in order. And by that, it means the way we do it. We give you a bulletin at the door, you know, the little paper that tells you what God's going to do this morning. And that's what we're going to do. And we're not going to do anything else. We're not going to ad lib anything. We're not going to have any of this gifts of the spirit stuff where there's no place in the bulletin or the service for you to function in a gift or prophesy or something. Oh, no, we're not going to do that. The biggest churches in America, which have the most to lose, if they lose any members at all, don't want anything in their church that would be controversial or would upset people because the spirit of this age is comfort and happiness. Make me comfortable, make me happy. You set aside the word of God, as Jesus said in Matthew 15 and Mark 9 or 7, you set aside the word of God for your traditions. We value the way we function and the way we met the Baptist Presbycostals do our Sunday. We value that more than we do doing something exclusively by the way the word says it. What about washing of feet? I'm not talking about your own, hopefully this morning before you came, but I'm talking about as a church ordinance. How about washing of feet? Well, you could imagine how many would pass out. You'd have to call 911. In most churches, if you said, we're going to wash feet this morning. Most people wouldn't know what you're talking about. Never seen it. Don't want to see it. I'm not thinking my, somebody taking their stinking shoes off and me washing. I ain't doing that. And yet, John 13, Jesus said, happy are you if you do these things. Amen. That's what he said. or not taking the oath, or being non-resistant. There's just so many things that God has showed us because we looked for it, because he singled us out to receive it. So many things that he has shown us that has become a conviction of ours that we had to leave wherever we were because they don't care about our convictions. I had to leave where I was. I did. I had to leave it because they didn't want me to have my convictions in that church. This is the way we do it. Don't change it. Even for me and the church I was in, this was splitting a church. This. Or saying, amen, is splitting a church. We don't want that. And so you see, so much of what people do today called religion is not Bible-based. They all use the Bible. That's why it's so hard to discuss it. Everybody uses the Bible. I was reading 
Friday morning, and I got to Isaiah chapter 48, at the end of the first verse, I read that and I thought, boy, this is so true. It seems like the Lord keeps putting stuff like this on my heart. Listen to this. The end of it says, which swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth and not in righteousness. It's a traditional thing. It's a ritual. It's a routine. It's the way we just always do it. It's just the way it is. There's nothing wrong with doing things consistently. I'm not going to change the way we do things just so we'll have a change of pace here. Word of God lives and abides forever. It never changes, never does change. And God always has something to say to his people when they come together to hear his word, but it'll cost you to hear this word. God will make sure that when he puts his word in your heart, it becomes a treasure and you will not compromise it for anybody else because you don't compromise convictions. Convictions are God-ordered beliefs. Preferences are, you know, good things to do, but under pressure, you'll let go of it. But not a conviction. Through history, saints have gone to the stakes and burned alive and killed because of convictions. They would not recant or renounce. They would not draw back because they had a conviction that what the word had shown them could not be compromised. And they were kept like that. This is the way it worked. This is the way God had them to do it. But this is not right. It's just not right, folks, for us to be so divided over the word. One church in a certain city in the south there was a lot of the same brand of churches in that city. And some of them will not even speak to the other ones. And they take communion each Sunday like I did in the Christian church. But these are churches of Christ. And one group believes in a common cup. And one group believed in little individual cups at the communion. And because they didn't agree on that, they split. Don't even talk turn their backs on each other. We're deeply spiritual people. We can do stuff like that and wonder and wonder and wonder and wonder some more. There is so much that God wants us to know about his word and about the cost that goes with the word. The Bible is not a casual thing. It's not a book you can take or, or leave. The content of the book is divine. It's the only book in the world like that. The words are the words of God. How do you know that? You have to believe that because it's been recopied hundreds and hundreds of times. You can't prove the stone was rolled away. When I was in Israel and I walked in a tomb, I don't know if that's the right tomb or not. I have no idea. I just went in there and spoke in tongues and came out. That's good. We can do it in anywhere. But it didn't matter. I believe it. Somewhere he came out of a tomb. Somewhere at some point in the year, and it wasn't December, he was born of a virgin. And it wasn't December. So therefore, the Bible shows me the traditions I've been involved with, like holidays. I'm not going to do that anymore either. Well, everybody, I don't care if everybody, that's our problem. 
We think that if enough people do it, it must be God. And he said, there is a way that seems right, but it's not right. What's your conviction about it? Well, you begin to this and that. You know, next Lord's Day is a traditional holiday, one of the biggest holidays. That's when you buy your new clothes. That's the one time a year men go to church. Well, they might go to church on Christmas Day too, but they go to church on Easter and Christmas. It's a show and tell thing. I'm showing myself, now you tell me something good and then I'll go home, I'll see you next year. And that's all, that's good enough. The preachers today are not called and sent, they're hired. They are trained and hired. And you cannot train anybody to be anointed. You cannot. There is no school of higher learning for ministers anywhere in the world. Now, the one I was in might be close, but putting that aside, there are no schools anywhere that can teach you how to be anointed or can train you to be anointed. There is nothing that comes from God that man can duplicate. He tries. He tries, and he accepts his way as good enough, and surely God will accept his efforts. But God said, that's not what I called you to do. That's not what I want. Man says, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And God says, well, it's a way of death. Well, I, I don't think you're like that. I'm going to do it anyway. So he disregards the word of God and he goes on. You're living in the time, especially you young folks, such a casual view today of God and his word and religion. Seem like so little of it is absolute because that's harsh. To say something is that you must. Absolute means you must. Oh, come on, that's too hard. And so the devil has this new language he puts in people's hearts to dismiss them from a holy life. Oh, come on, man. I mean, after all, who's perfect? That type of stuff. Come on, man, give me a break. But that's probably what he said to Eve. (laughs) Probably said the same stuff then, we just didn't have recordings in. Oh, we can't touch that. We can't eat of that. Oh, come on, Eve. You mean to tell me you'll die if you... You're going, I guess because you eat that fruit, you're going to die. And then these words, which change the game for most people. What kind of God do you serve? You think he's like that? Is God so narrow and so harsh that if you took a bite of part of his creation, which he said was good, that you're going to die? The New Testament says he deceived Eve by his subtlety, didn't he? He He appealed to her thinking, her reasoning abilities, and logic comes into play. And you begin to assume that God is like you and that surely he didn't mean it like that. And after all, and you begin to allow yourself to do a lot of things you shouldn't do. You give license to yourself to operate in areas that the only thing that come out of it is sin. And you don't even realize how far you get on that wide, broad way in life that you're with everybody else having a good time and wonder why these little narrow right-wing conservative troublemakers, they have their own little stinking way and they won't, you know, and yet they do without and they have trouble in this. They go, but it's just what convictions cause. Security with God requires me to walk in his truth. I am committed to that. 
you have a mandate to do that. Your church membership attendance means nothing unless you're willing to live by the word of God. And you cannot live by the word of God unless you learn it. Unless the Lord opens your eyes to see it. There has to be that desire to do it God's way. It's a new life we live. A life that's orchestrated by the Lord and his spirit to bring us from where he called us to where he wants us. And everything that comes in the way there to try to pull you apart, we call them trials and testings and attempts of the tempter to draw you away from the faith or to get you to back off or let down or come on, man, that type of thing. And that song, though none go with me, still I will follow, becomes a theme in your life. I have to live according to this word because in well, Deuteronomy 32, the Old Testament, he said, this is your life, this book. Jesus told the devil, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's what I need. Because by the power of that word, God's going to secure me and keep me. You shall know the truth. Somebody help me. This is John 8, 32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Keep you free. The truth shall keep you free. That's the way it ought to be. The apostle Paul, in writing to one of his subjects, Timothy, he majored on doctrine. You know what he said to this young preacher? He said, labor in doctrine. Labor. The word is an intense word. It has to do with exhausting yourself, putting your best into it until you get there. Labor in doctrine. Teach the people right from wrong. Show them what the Bible says. Find out for yourself. You have a revelation from God, and then you simply convey that revelation to them. This is the only way God said his people will ever be free, to know the truth. And part of this truth for the church is doctrine. And doctrine seems so legalistic to so many people. All these do's and don'ts and taking notes and papers and pencils and all that. I thought church was a place to just get edified and enjoy the things of God. Well, it could. I certainly enjoyed myself. My toes hurt, but I enjoyed myself. I preached to myself more than I do you. I got a good example. But this is the way he wants us to live. Get convicted about the way you live. This word is a mirror, isn't this? Looking into a mirror, the word, then they say something like that in James 1. Or in another place in 2 Corinthians, we behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What do we do with it? The traditional churches say, well, that's not exactly how we see it. God says, if you're not seeing what I'm seeing, you're walking in darkness. Isaiah 8.20, if they speak not according to this word, they have no what? They have no light. How can anybody anywhere know where you're going 
if you can't see where you're going. Or if you just hold on to the person in front of you and just follow the traditions, you don't know where you're going. Where will you be at the end of this journey? You ever think of that? When, if we keep going the direction that we're going here, where will we wind up? If we're speaking the word, then God is bringing us to a place where at the end of it, our convictions will have compelled us to action, to do things right. And he'll say, well done. Thou good and faithful servant. Now, second thing that we have to deal with that is also divisive, obviously, would you turn to John 14, is the Holy Spirit. How many churches have split over the Holy Spirit? How many books have been written about it one way or the other? The Holy Spirit and all the divisions that have come because people have, as we used to say, gotten hold of the Holy Spirit. You could better say that whom the Holy Spirit had gotten hold of. This subject is bigger than we are this morning in the time we're here. The Godhead is beyond and above all of us. You've got Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. And we often try to make distinctions because in the natural world, we can make distinctions. But when you talk about divinity and spiritual things, the mind of man cannot see God as he sees himself. God is in a higher zone than we are. As the Bible said, in the beginning, it was the Spirit of God that hovered over the void. There was nothing out there. And a voice came from God, who is spirit. And the voice said, let there be. And the Spirit created that. So we try to put these things together and bring them into focus. And we see that, you know, God does what he does so many times what he does, he does it by his spirit. The words you're holding in your lap this morning. All scripture, Bible says, is inspired by the Lord. It means it's God breathed. It is breathed forth by the Holy Spirit. So what you have is a spirit-inspired word. Now, this is what it says, John 14. Remember in John 14, Jesus is ending up his earthly life, giving some final instructions to his disciples. When he gets to John 17, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and after that, he is crucified, and then he is raised from the dead. The greatest event in all of history. Verse 16, John 14. Part of his instruction is, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter. Do you see the word another? Now, I want you to think a little while. Just think about this more. What, what do you mean another one? You mean there's two of them? Now, like I said earlier, you're talking about divine things here that run together. Didn't Jesus talk about the Father being greater than all? And then he said, I and the Father are one. And we try to figure that out. We think, well, how, how can that be? Just accept it. Let your brain do the best it can. But he said, I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another comforter that he may abide with you 
forever. Now, there's security in that verse. Amen? Now, verse 17. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. Because you see, they cannot relate to something in the spiritual realm. The world cannot encounter this thing about the Holy Spirit only academically. They can read about it and try to imagine, put some things together in their mind. But they cannot know him. They cannot experience him. He said, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but you know him. Now, who's he talking about you know him? Is he talking about the Holy Spirit? He is, isn't he? But then who he's talking here about, he said, you know him. Does he mean that you know him by what he's done in your life when I sent you out two by two? Or you know him because he's talking to you? Well, Jesus is not the Holy Spirit, but they are the same essence. Let me see where this goes. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you and he shall be in you. Is it possible that Christ could be with his disciples and then be in his disciples? Now, if Christ is not in his disciples, his disciples are not his. Well, how could somebody go in somebody else? How could, see, we're thinking the natural here. How could this person go inside of another person? Well, that's not hard to do. In, if, in, in the spiritual realm. Remember, y'all heard of a guy named Judas? Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, in John chapter 13, said he was tempted. And after a certain time of this temptation, he yielded to the temptation. And the Bible says, and Satan entered into Judas. So the devil was inside of Judas. And because the thief comes to kill and to steal and destroy, when he was done with Judas, what happened to Judas? He killed himself. Something's not good about that. A spirit, an entity came inside and dwelt within a human body. Jesus one time cast these entities out of a person and there was a legion inside of a man. There were so many devils in a man, so many demons spiritual things and entities, spirits in this man that a whole herd of pigs ran into the sea because these spirits went into those pigs. Better watch out for them pork chops, all right? But anyway, anyway, doesn't mean that, you know what I mean. I hope you do. But he said, and he said, for he dwelleth with you, verse 17, and he shall be in you. He's not in there yet, he said to his disciple, but he shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. Then he says it this way, I will come to you. Boy, I think that's so in. I had to paint it orange so I could see. Whew, the Godhead dwells bodily. Anyway, go to verse 25. Jesus said, these things I have spoken being yet present with you. But the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, and here's another orange line, whom the Father will send in my name. What will he do? 
We're talking about security of the believer here and the work of the Holy Spirit. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatever I have said unto you. Well, that's obviously not true with a lot of Christians. That is obviously not true with multitudes of church members. Good people, nice people, fine people, kind people, all of that. Because a whole lot of what God has to say to people is too expensive. I can't afford to do that. I might lose my job, my prestige. I might, this, I could lose this. I mean, I, I would be embarrassed and people, oh, what if the governor of the state came to church where I was going to wash somebody's feet? Oh, I can't, I, no, I can't do that. I can't, no, that, that's not going to work. Park me inside of a big church where there's people, no people. That's what I'm talking about, the hour you're in. He shall teach you all things and shall bring all things to you. Remember whatever I have said unto you. Wasn't that the great commission? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have said unto you. Who's going to reveal those things to us? Spirit. The Holy Spirit. That's his mission. And if he reveals those things to you, is it not true that would become a conviction? Or do you think the Holy Spirit just casually suggests things to us? Do you think that we can downplay the work of the Holy Spirit where well we ought to, but if we don't, <laughs> you think it's that way? Or do you think when God singled you out to be his and sent his Holy Spirit into your heart, connecting you with him, Father, Father, and the Holy Spirit inside of you, do you think he begins convicting you of things because it's a suggestion? Are we going to vote on it? Or is it an absolute, the only way for me to live? It is. And not many people will do that. Couldn't afford to do that. Why, if I got that holy, I might never get married. Why, if I got that holy, I wouldn't be cute anymore. If I had to dress modest, who would look at me? Oh, excuse me, I got off on something else there for just a minute. Look at chapter 16, spirit of truth. When the Bible speaks of the spirit of truth, what did Jesus mean in John 17 when he said, thy word is truth? If his word is truth, why is it truth? Because it's inspired of God. Other books are noble books and writings of man through the ages. They're not truth. They're expressions of the human intellect, but they're not truth. There's only one book on the earth that's truth. And it's inspired by the spirit of truth. Jesus said in John 6, 63, he said, my words are spirit and life because they bring life. Let me show you some more here. Let's go on. John chapter 16. John 16 and verse 12. I have many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. One of the things I like about teaching, which is absent in so much of Christianity today, is you get to make one statement and then take five minutes to explain it, and most everybody understand it anyway. But listen to this. So I'm going to make a point. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, now, 
I'm not going to be with you long, but I'm not going to leave you alone. There will be another comforter come and he will abide with you forever. So don't grieve my being gone. They didn't understand this yet. And he said, I have more things to say to you. They're probably thinking, well, if you're going to leave and be gone, how are you going to talk to us? And then he said this in the same context. He said, I have more things to say to you, but you cannot receive it. Does it say that? You have gone as far as you can go without the next level. You can go so far without the Holy Spirit. You can establish your church and have meetings. You can do that. But there is a goal that can be attained only by the leading and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He said, I have a lot of things to say to you yet, but you can't receive it. That's true right now as I speak. There are things that God says that this traditional world cannot accept, cannot understand, and cannot receive. Especially when it comes to our next message about faith and healing, trusting in God, walking by faith, enduring trials. I don't think most of them know what you're talking about. They've been in church their whole life. But he said, I have more things to say than what you've heard me say. Boy, he said a lot. He said, how be it, verse 13, how be it when he, the spirit of truth is come, what will he do in the next verse, verse 13? How be it when he, the spirit of truth is come, he will guide you into all truth. Maybe not all at once, but probably little by little. Just a little nugget here, a little nugget next week. Don't miss the next week because there'll be another nugget and these little nuggets are like pieces to a puzzle. And they begin to form an image on the inside of you of who God is and what your mission in life is. That the best you can do is bow your heart to him and let him do his work in you. And when you do that work, you're still an unprofitable servant because he's God and he gets the glory. And you begin to see it. Then you quit trying so hard to be so spiritual and so religious and make a show in the flesh you begin to realize that his design is to get the word in you and then stir that word up on the inside of you until the image and the picture of what the word says is formed in your mind until you can see what God sees and then you and God are in agreement. You're seeing the same thing. Then there's a resignation of your will, the bowing of the heart, the humbling of yourself under this mighty hand of God to do things his way. It's what happens. It's that work of the Holy Spirit, which you know what I just said seldom happens in a lots and lots of places, but it's what happens when the Holy Spirit's involved. God never aimlessly sends his word out to an indifferent crowd. There may be an indifferent crowd there. There may be one or two people in that crowd that God has marked out for his own. And all the things that were said went over everybody's head except for two people. And two people got all fired up and everybody else went home disappointed or fell asleep. But this is what the Holy Spirit does. When he comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. He'll stay at it. As we say, he'll keep plugging away at it. And the truth will just keep coming a little bit more, a little bit more in focus. And first you see through this, it's kind of dim looking and you can't really see it clear, but you're hungry for it.
I want more of this. And so you, you seek more and it's like somebody that's watching some series of something and they're so excited you can't wait till the next one. And boy, you set your clock to watch it. Well, that's what happened when the Holy Spirit gets divine with you. You want more. Y'all remember when you first got into this, how you couldn't wait to get to church? Still that way, isn't it? But he said, he will guide you into all the truth. Gradually, piece by piece, little bits by little bits. And the word that will be formed on the inside of you by the spirit of truth will be something that opens the eyes. And when the eyes are opened and you begin to see, the Greek word for see in Ephesians 1, that the Bible says the spirit of wisdom and revelation, your eyes will be opened to see what is the hope of your calling and so forth. The word see there is a word which means video. It's like a visual. You will know it. The word know is the word see. The word know is like I know it even as much as if I saw it. Because most folks say, well, I'll believe it if I see it. Well, when the Spirit of God gives revelation to his people, it is so real and so certain and so believable that you cannot but believe it. Oh, it's a challenge, see, because, uh-oh, what are we going to do with this? Well, be glad you got it. Just deal with it like you do everything else, but hold on to this. This is a pearl of great price. It's a great treasure. Don't let go of this. This is what God gives to his people. And this is what he wants. And so you see, when God gives us things and shows us things, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 2, and look at verse 9. But as it is written, I hath not seen, neither ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them. But... God has revealed these secret things, these unknowable to the world things, has revealed them unto us, how? By his spirit, for the spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. And he goes on to talk about it more down through there. So we know this so far, that Jesus said, now, concerning the word, which you're going to have to make a distinction, it's going to cause you to be persecuted and misunderstood. That's part of it. It has to be assisted now by the Holy Spirit because without the Spirit of God, you can't get the word right. You can't get it right. You memorize it all you want to, but only by the Spirit of God can you understand the revelation the Bible has. Turn to Ephesians 1. Only by the Holy Spirit. He said right here in 1 Corinthians 10. But God hath revealed them to us by his spirit, didn't he? And in our verse that we use every, at least twice a month, Ephesians 1 verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Understanding is a word that's often translated heart. The part of you that gets it. Eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may see, know what is the hope of his calling. He does that in verse 17 by the work of the Holy Spirit, spirit of wisdom and revelation, doesn't he? 
then does God not send his spirit specifically for his own elect on this earth that he might guide them into all the truth? Not the world, not casual do-gooders, but his own. Is that not true? It is true. And when the Holy Spirit begins to show you things, he shows you things that are in the word. He doesn't dream up good ideas. Hey, look at that. He points you to the word, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that the things of God become what they are, the word of God to you. And you're convicted. Your heart gets gripped. And something here is stirring on the inside of you that you can't let go of, and yet you don't want to let go of. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Well, when did the Holy Spirit come? Because remember back in chapter 14, he said, I will not leave you alone. I will send the Holy Spirit to give you another comforter. When did he send it? Well, that's interesting. When did he send it? Look at Luke 24. I want you to follow me in this because I think this is really important because it's where so much controversy is today in the church. Luke chapter 24 and verse 49. But tarry ye in the city until I do what? Verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Does your Bible say that? Now he said a while ago, the Father will send in my name, didn't he? And here he says, behold, I send the promise of my father upon ye, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until, until ye be endued with power from on high. Do we need that? Amen. Who's he talking to? We're talking here to his disciples. Wasn't talking to the world. Wasn't talking to the 5,000 on the hillsides. He's talking to his followers. It's a picture of his elect, his chosen ones. And he says, I'm going to send the promise of my father upon you. Now you tarry in the city here of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. They didn't know what that meant because it had never happened like it's going to happen in history or time. This is going to be a brand new thing. But you tarry in the city until you be endued with power from on high. Now, skip John, go to Acts 1. This is where the same writer continues. Verse 4, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. So we're continuing on in Luke 24. Verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. And verse 8, when it happens, this baptism of the Holy Ghost, he said, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. You know, the word witnesses actually is a word for martyr. Martyr. In a deeper sense, it means that this is going to do such a thing in your life that you're going to be willing to die for what you believe. 
Because Jesus said in John 16, you'll be witnesses unto me in all the world. But you won't be a witness like you should be until the power of the Holy Ghost comes upon you. Now, without the Holy Ghost, you can be sent out by a mission board, trained in a school on how to use a lot of psychology to make people feel better and go into the jungles of the world and go into places of the world and establish things and do little things. And you can do that. Or there can be a divine call and you can be sent. You don't need a board to send you. You don't need a church to send you. We will recognize you if you got that call. We will examine it and talk to you like they did in Acts 15. If we convince and have a common belief about this, and we'll pray for you, and we'll, if we can, we'll support you. But the call is between you and God. It's not the church and you. It's you and God. So, he said, you're going to receive power to witness. And if it costs you your life in a the jungle, then that's the price you paid. Amen. You get promoted to heaven after that. And that's not a bad deal. So, we got... Luke 24, verse 49, tarry ye in the city. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, you shall receive power. When's all this going to happen? Let's go to Acts 2 now. I should have known you'd do that. Acts chapter 2, verses 1, 2, 3, 4. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's what happened. That's how it happened. The Holy Spirit came in a certain specific New Testament way. This is not something that happened in the Old Testament or it ever happened at any other time. It symbolized, it marked something new in the world. That the Holy Spirit had come the one who's going to bring power, the one who's going to guide you into all the truth, the one who's going to teach you all things, the one who's going to keep you from falling and so forth. And when he came, he came this specific way. They were all waiting as he had been instructed in a room. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven, from above, and there was this noise in the room. Would you have been frightened? I would have, but I doubt if they could move. And then there appeared in them these cloven looked like fire with like flame and they set on each of them. As this fire set on each of them, something happened on the inside of them. The Bible said they began to speak in other tongues, other languages. Whether the language was a known language as it was on that day with people that were there and heard them in their own dialect or whether it's a tongues of men or angels. It was something not learned, something not imitated. It was something special, something specific. 
that God caused to happen to his disciples on that day. They begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, why did this happen? Put your finger there because we're going to come back to the last part of the chapter in just a minute. And go to Joel. Joel chapter 2. Now, keep your finger in Acts. Joel chapter 2. Hosea, Joel, Amos. After Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. Now, have you found it? Now, put your finger there and go back to Acts 2 now. Peter is preaching. They asked in verse 12, what does this mean? What's going on here? Some of the people thought they were drunk. Would you agree with me that the way they were expressing this tongues was unusual? They weren't sitting there going, whatever language. They weren't talking like that. Man, this was a mighty moment. And some of those around were mocking. Said, Look at them drunks. Peter said to them, in verse 14, but Peter standing up with the 11 lifted up his voice and said to them, you men of Judea and all that dwell in Jerusalem, be it known unto you and hearken to my words. For these men are not drunken as you suppose, but this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Now does Peter say that? Amen. Was he inspired when he said that? Amen. Is this the word of God showing in the New Testament what an Old Testament verse meant? Amen. Now we go back to that Old Testament verse. Verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Boy, I've dreamed a million of them. Anyway, old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions and also upon their servants and upon your handmaidens of those days, I will pour out my spirit. Go back to Acts 2 again. And he says, and it shall come to pass, saith God, that I will pour out my spirit, verse 17, upon all flesh, all over the world. I'm going to cross all denominational, traditional church boundaries. I was in the Christian church. Of all the deadness that could be found, we were probably, as I look back, one of the deadest, most liberal. And yet God saw fit to pour his spirit out wonderfully and mighty in those days in the late 60s in that church. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and we did. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And upon my servants and my handmaidens, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. This is what's going to happen. Well, what's the tongues mean? Are you still got your finger in Acts 2? All right. Leave it there and, and drop it from Joel and go to Isaiah 28. Isaiah chapter 28. God tells us here about the tongues in the Old Testament. Not that people want to hear it, but this is what he said. Verse 9, whom will you teach knowledge? And whom will you make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the 
milk that are drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. God said, but for with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. This is a New Testament time. With stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest and this is the refreshing. And as it was then, it is today, but they would not hear. There's something about the word tongues that throws such an image up in people's minds that they see this bizarre behavior. People who speak in tongues usually slobber a lot and they shake a lot and they look afflicted when they do this. And as many of them fall on the floor and they bang their heads against the walls and women drop their babies and people go to yelling and, and it's just, you know, that's what tongues do to people. That's what my mom told me. Moms are right. When I first heard about it, I said, I'm gonna go ask my mother. I said, Mom, what is speaking in tongues? I remember the first thing she said, where have you been? <laughs> I just heard about it. I came from a prayer meeting over at the Baptist church and there was this unusual fellow there. He was lively. We were dead. Boy, this guy was alive. And I was told to stay away from him because he spoke in tongues. Not that he was a Christian, not that he passed out tracts and witnessed all the time and led many people to the Lord. No, he spoke in tongues. Therefore, he is a, probably a village idiot, so you want to stay away from him. He probably doesn't know how to act or conduct his affairs, and he's just real strange. <laughs> that image is so fixed in the minds of a lot of traditional churches that as one said not too long ago, you may do that, but don't you do it here. If God has a message for us, he didn't say this, but if God wanted to speak to us that way, we will not receive it. And they still have a church. Still, the, you know, all it is. But the pastor said, stood up, this man that everybody admires and loves, he said, we will not have that here. None of this Holy Ghost stuff here. We're more refined, maybe. We're more creditable than that. We don't need to speak in tongues to win souls to Christ. How do you know they're one anyway? Just because they go to church doesn't mean they're one. 150 in Sunday school class, that doesn't mean they're one. They go to Sunday school class. There's something about what God does today that only a few of us are going to get a hold of it. Again, we're here this morning because I had to leave where I was to come here. Even the church I came from to come here the direction they were going to go, I challenged it with the word. I said, that's not right. And they're not going to change. So I left. I didn't change. I left. I came here. You came here. We knocked around in a room for a little while, a few of us. Knocked some paper off the walls in homes. Learned to play guitars and ukuleles, and it just kept going. And finally, here we are. We'll never be a big church. Not many people willing to walk this way. This is one of the most controversial, next to Santa Claus. I think the speaking in tongues, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of the Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit is one of the most difficult things 
for a lot of the proper people to get a hold of. I'm going to finish this next week. I got a lot more to say about this. Let me tell you something. If God filled you with the Holy Spirit, live a spirit-filled life. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will bless your word in its truth and in its reality to each one of us here this morning. Help us to get it, to perceive what you're saying. Give us the courage to have convictions and to live convictions, to take a stand, to let it be known that this is what we believe, to be that way in a loving sense, in a caring sense. God grant that we not quench the spirit, for we are his purchased possession. And let us not restrain him in, in our lives to say or lead us where he wants us to go. Grant us the courage to live on your terms. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.